One of the most well-known stories in the Bible is the story of David and Goliath. Even many people who don't read the Bible or don't even go to church have heard the story of David killing Goliath. However, what isn't very well known about David is the fact that before he killed Goliath, he fought with and killed both a lion and a bear. When he defeated Goliath, that was the event that propelled him into the limelight. That is what put him in the public eye. But even prior to that, he was a young man who was willing to sacrifice greatly to carry out his God-given responsibilities. David understood sacrifice. And as a result, he attracted others who were like that. 2 Samuel chapter 23 lists some of his mighty men who helped him become king. Let's turn there by way of introduction this morning back to 2 Samuel chapter 23. Before David was king, he had to hide from King Saul, and one of his hiding places was the cave of Adullam. And we are told in chapter 23 of 2 Samuel about some of the men who gathered there. 2 Samuel 23, verse 13. Then three of the 30 chief men went down at harvest time and came to David at the cave of Adullam. And the troop of the Philistines encamped in the valley of Rephaim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then in Bethlehem. And David said with longing, Oh, that someone would give me a drink of the water from the well of Bethlehem, which is by the gate. So the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines, drew water from the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate, and took it and brought it to David. Nevertheless, he would not drink it, but poured it out to the Lord. And he said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Is this not the blood of the men who went in jeopardy their lives? Therefore, he would not drink it. These things were done by the three mighty men. These three men were not content with the status quo. They were men who were driven to excel, even if it cost them. Beloved, I hope I'm not telling you anything new when I say that if you want to excel in life, if you want to excel in your walk with the Lord, then it will cost you something. Self-discipline and self-sacrifice are involved. In the very next chapter, we see this mindset in David himself. Look at chapter 24 of 2 Samuel. David sinned in the early part of this chapter, and time doesn't allow us to delineate all that was involved, but as a result, there was a terrible plague among the people. With that as background, we're going to pick up the story in verse 18. So in verse 18 it says, And Gad came that day to David and said to him, Go up, erect an altar to the Lord on the threshing floor of of Araunah, the Jebusite. So David, according to the word of God, went up as the Lord commanded. Now Araunah looked and saw the king and his servants coming toward him. 
So Aruna went out and bowed before the king with his face to the ground. Then Aruna said, Why is my lord the king come to his servant? And David said, To buy the threshing floor from you, to build an altar to the Lord that the plague may be withdrawn from the people. Now Aruna said to David, Let my lord the king take and offer up whatever seems good to him. Look, here are oxen for burnt sacrifice and threshing implements and the yokes of the oxen for wood. All these, O king, Aruna has given to the king. And Aruna said to the king, May the Lord your God accept you. Then the king, this is David, said to Aruna, No, no, but I will surely buy it from you for a price. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. So David bought the threshing floor and the oxen for 50 shekels of silver. You see, sacrifice is an essential part of worship and service to God. No wonder David excelled. What an exemplary mindset and heart attitude he had. Nor will I offer burnt offerings to the Lord my God with that which costs me nothing. In Mark 14, we have a beautiful illustration of a woman who felt the same way about her relationship with the Lord Jesus. Let's turn together to Mark chapter 14 as we resume our series through Mark's gospel. This event that we are going to look at this morning took place just a few days before Passover, which was the time when Jesus was crucified. Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 3. And being in Bethany at the house of Simon the leper, as he, that he of course is a reference to Jesus, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster flask, a very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always and wherever you wish or whenever you wish, you may do them good. But me you do not have always. She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. As I mentioned a moment ago, this event took place just a few days before Passover, which was the time when Jesus was crucified. John tells us that this event actually took place on the Saturday prior to Passover. Passover would take place on Friday of the next week, which is the day Jesus died. Two days before that, on Wednesday, Jesus warned his disciples of what was coming, and that is summarized in the first two verses of this chapter where we read, after two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by deception 
and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. And according to Matthew's account of this, Jesus informed his disciples of this plot. So Mark is not following strict chronology at this point because he wants to contrast the plot of the Jewish leaders as described here in verses 1 and 2 with what took place a few days earlier in Bethany. This dear lady anointed Jesus for burial and then a few days later, the Jewish leaders conspired to kill him. So again, let me just emphasize, verses 3 through 9 took place first, then the plot to kill Jesus in verses 1 and 2. That's the contrast that Mark sets up in his gospel record. Many groups and many people had tried to kill Jesus prior to this time, but it didn't happen because it wasn't his time to die. But now it was time for him to die. God had ordained that his perfect lamb would be sacrificed at Passover. That's what this entire 14th chapter of Mark is all about. Mark tells us about all of the events leading up to the death of Jesus. He tells us about the plot of the leaders. He tells us about the anointing by Mary for burial. He tells us about the agreement of Judas to betray Jesus. He tells us about the final Passover with the disciples. He tells us about Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He tells us about the arrest of Jesus in the Garden. And he tells us about the trial of Jesus before the Sanhedrin. All of these events lead up to the pinnacle of Mark's gospel, which is the death and resurrection of Jesus in chapters 15 and 16. So as we work our way through this 14th chapter, Mark is leading us on a journey to the crucifixion and resurrection of our Lord. One of the events that led to that culmination is the one here in verses 3 through 9 in which Mary, the sister of Lazarus, worshipped the Lord Jesus in such a sacrificial manner by anointing him for his burial. This is such a beautiful picture of genuine, heartfelt sacrificial worship. In fact, it's one of the most beautiful pictures of worship in all of Scripture. This isn't didactic teaching about worship. In other words, it's not instruction like here's how you do it, here's what you do, here's what you don't do. No, this is an illustration. All of us appreciate illustrations to help us understand spiritual truth and to give us a clearer picture of what God is saying about a given subject. This story helps us understand true worship, which is the primary application I'm going to drive home this morning. Here in Mark's Gospel, chapter 14, we have an illustration of worship that is also recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 26, and also in the Gospel of John, chapter 12. That's how important this event was. It is recorded three times in the Word of God. So let's see what we can learn from it. Verse 3 tells us, And being in Bethany, at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came having an alabaster, alabaster flask of very costly oil of spikenard. Then she broke the flask, 
and poured it on his head. As I mentioned earlier, this event took place a few days prior to the Passover. Six days to be exact. It was Saturday night. Passover would be the next Friday. This was one of our Lord's last nights outside of Jerusalem prior to his crucifixion. If we had been able to be present in Jerusalem at this particular period of time, we would have been struck by the fact that it was absolutely inundated with crowds and crowds of people. It is estimated that it was somewhere in the number of two million people who descended upon Jerusalem for the celebration of Passover. If we would have been able to move among the crowd and talk with the people, listen to them, catch their conversations as it were in the various thoroughfares of their day, we would discover that the people were talking along the lines of political intrigue. They were talking about the fact of social injustice. They were talking about how long it would be that they as Jews would have to be forced to put up with all of this dreadful aggravation and oppression that was showered upon them by the Roman authorities. We would also have caught from them the national pride and fervency in their hearts, hopes rising within their hearts, national feelings running high. We would have heard about the question of liberation, the coming of the kingdom, the possibility of the Messiah, the overthrow of Roman imperialism. Maybe this would be the time. Perhaps this would be the day. Sprinkled through all of that, there was an awareness on the part of each member of the crowd of the dreadful ravages of racial prejudice. All of that and more is represented in the background statement that is given to us by Mark in the opening verses of this chapter. When he simply says, after two days, it was Passover. A couple million people swarming around Jerusalem, having these conversations, talking about these things. And we might expect that Mark would tell us about some fascinating story taking place in this great and vast crowd But he doesn't. Mark takes us away from the crowd and into the relative obscurity of the home of Simon the leper who lived in the village of Bethany. By the way, this is the same village that Lazarus lived in along with his sisters Mary and Martha. Lazarus was the man Jesus raised from the dead as recorded in John chapter 11. So one monumental event had already taken place in this small village, which was less than two miles from Jerusalem on the backside of the Mount of Olives. It would appear that Simon was called Simon the leper because he had been a leper and presumably he had been healed by the Lord. But since the name, was, the name Simon was very common in that day, as the way John would be a familiar name today, There had to be a further designation whereby you would know to whose house you were supposed to go. And so they would say, we will be going to the house of Simon. That is, Simon the leper. So there was a dinner party that had gathered there. Possibly there were others celebrating the fact of the resurrection of Lazarus because, as I mentioned, it had taken place right here in this town of Bethany, in this very same village. So the crowd had come for supper. And while Jesus was reclining at table 
In the home of Simon the leper, Mark tells us that a woman came. When Mark says a woman came, that is a fairly inconsequential little introductory phrase, not giving an inkling of of all that is to follow. This is the kind of phrase we might overlook. This is the kind of event that we may be tempted simply to scan and move on, especially with the vast crowd outside and all these talks of liberation and political intrigue. And yet in the great economy of God and in the unfolding of His purposes, what is about to take place in this obscure context was far more significant than than what was taking place outside on street level. Because while everyone was busy doing a bunch of other things, preparing for Passover, maybe even scheming about how to overthrow the Romans, while everyone was doing a bunch of other things, a dear lady came to worship. Here in the actions of this lady, we discover what genuine worship is all about. I want you to notice with me a number of straightforward things from this text so we can learn from this woman's example of sacrificial worship. First of all, she came prepared to worship. Mark says this woman came with an alabaster jar of very expensive perfume. That is how we know she came prepared. She had come with a purpose when she came carrying this alabaster jar. A Roman pound was 12 ounces, and this jar contained approximately that amount. Therefore, it was substantial. It was not the kind of thing you could conceal about your person very readily, and it would be impossible to notice this lady without noticing the jar she carried. And she carried it with her because the action which was to follow was a premeditated action. She had planned it. She was prepared. Beloved, this is a tremendous illustration of the fact that if worship is to be entered into in its fullness and usefulness, it is going to have to be premeditated. We have to prepare for it. Why do you come to church? Think about that for a moment. Why do you come? Do you come because you think you're supposed to come? Do you come because you feel an obligation to come? Or do you come because you are planning on worshiping? That is a vitally significant question. Our corporate worship will not be what it should be if you don't come prepared and if you don't participate. Your voice is important. Your presence is necessary. You are a significant member of the worship team. This lady came to worship. She was doing what the psalmist described as he prepared always to worship God. In Psalm 89, the psalmist opens with these words, I will sing of the Lord's great love forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness through all generations. I will declare that your love stands firm forever, that you establish your faithfulness in heaven itself. All those things are volitional. 
All of those verbs have to do with an act of the will, not with a feeling, but with a choice. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. He doesn't say, the psalmist doesn't say, if I feel like it, I will do that. I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever. With my mouth, I will make known your faithfulness. That was the same kind of determination this lady had. She came prepared to worship. Secondly, she is a lady who bore the cost of the worship she displayed. This alabaster jar was full of very expensive perfume. It was made from very rare dry Himalayan plants. Half a liter would have cost $9,000. And she had in her possession somewhere in the region of 12 ounces. It would have cost almost a year's wage to purchase this perfume. Did you catch that? It would have cost almost a year's wage to purchase this perfume, not to mention the expensive flask that was broken to pour it out. Alabaster was a very fine variety of marble quarried in Egypt, which could be carved into delicate containers for storing costly perfumes. Therefore, her premeditated action was one which bore a cost. But the monetary value was not as significant as the value of this possession to her as a woman. Let me explain. This kind of possession was often a family heirloom. This kind of possession may have been purchased for her by her father. She may have secured it as a result of prosperity in her younger life. And she had this jar of perfume for one of two reasons. Either to be used as a dowry for her wedding or to be used in the face of her own burial so that in the embalming process, they may be able to take this expensive product and use it to prepare her for her passage out of time and into eternity. When you think of that for a moment or two, you realize that the worship of this woman displayed a cost that was far greater than finance. Because by this one particular action, this lady surrendered her personal plans. Are you willing to do that for worship? Are you willing to surrender your personal plans? Or is it more important to you to just fill in the blank? This lady surrendered her personal plans so she could worship. And she surrendered her social acceptability, as we'll see in a moment. So what, what do we learn from this woman about worship? What, what have we seen so far? Number one, we learn that for worship to be genuine, we must prepare. Number two, for worship to be genuine, we must bear the cost. There has to be some cost in genuine worship. Anybody can mouth songs. Anybody can sing along. Anybody can engage in ritual and liturgy. But what is being described here is something far more intrinsic than that. It's something far deeper than that. And this woman revealed it in her actions. Thirdly, 
She endured the criticism that emerged as a result of what she did. Verse 4 tells us, But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, Why this fragrant oil, why was this fragrant oil wasted? Some of the people present were speaking indignantly or were speaking with resentment in their voices. They said, why this waste of perfume? That is a reminder of the financial cost that was involved in this woman's worship. It was approximately a year's worth of wages. How many of us have given a year's wages to the Lord in worship? Now, if you take the common figure that a lot of Christians use of 10% and give that to the Lord consistently in worship for 10 years, then you have. But my guess is that most people here have not done that. This lady gave that much on this one occasion. We're told in John's gospel that Judas was the one leading the charge in criticizing this woman. You see, he wanted that money. Because of the condition of his heart, worship wasn't worth that much to him. He resented the fact, and so did the others, that this lady would express her devotion and love for the Lord by giving this much. So she endured the criticism. Verse 5 tells us that they continued their chastising of her by saying, for it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her. They scolded her sharply. As I just mentioned, Judas was the ringleader in this criticism. Now, you know, he didn't really care about the poor. Since he was the treasurer, he knew that he could have access to all the money that could have been attained by selling this perfume. The other disciples didn't know that's what he was up to, so they, lacking discernment, joined in the protest. Mark tells us that they criticized her sharply. I can just hear them. You stupid woman. Who do you think you are? Are you trying to make the rest of us look bad? Are you trying to show off? Why not just fit in with the rest of us? Why do you have to be so extreme? You make us feel so uncomfortable doing this. They rebuked her harshly. She could feel their eyes burning into the back of her head. She could hear their whispered animosity. She could hear them calling her a weirdo. She could hear them saying, we're not used to that kind of thing around here. She endured their criticism. Fourthly, she was commended by the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 6, but Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good thing for me, a good work for me. Notice what Jesus said here. Jesus said, leave her alone. What a wonderful statement. It's not often that you hear Jesus talking like this. Leave her alone. And then he asked the question, why do you trouble the woman? 
She has done a good work for me. She, she has done a beautiful thing for me. She did a beautiful thing because she recognized who Jesus was, and she may have recognized what Jesus was about to do. Beloved, when you and I come to understand who Jesus really is and the wonderful thing that Jesus has done, then it will change our entire approach to worship. Some of us have become so calloused to the truth of who Jesus is and what he has done that we need to ask the Spirit of God to descend upon our hearts in a new and fresh way to open the eyes of our understanding to the immensity of what Jesus has done for us. Lest we become part of the group known for our coldness toward passionate worship. Our criticism of passionate worship. The final thing to notice here is that this lady made a lasting impression. Notice verse 7. Jesus says, For you have the poor with you always, and whenever you wish you may do them good, but me you do not have always. This is a remarkable statement when you stop to think about how much the Scripture says about caring for the poor. So we know that Jesus wasn't minimizing that important responsibility. But what it does show us is that worshiping Jesus because he is God is of utmost importance. If he weren't God, this would be a blasphemous statement. But because he is God, this is completely appropriate. And so in verse 8, Jesus says, She has done what she could. She has come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. We don't know with certainty, because the Scripture doesn't tell us, if Mary knew Jesus was about to die. It is possible that she had some awareness. Maybe she was more spiritually perceptive than the disciples were because they sure didn't get it at this point. They still didn't know. They weren't anticipating it. So it's possible she had some awareness or she simply may have been carrying out this act as, a, as pure and abandoned worship. Whether or not she knew Jesus was about to die in just a few days, this sacrificial act of worship was received by the Lord as anointing him for his burial. And this was so meaningful to him that he made sure that it would be a lasting memorial. Jesus promised that this event would be recorded in Holy Scripture. And in fact, it's recorded in three of the four gospel records. Here's the promise, verse 9. Assuredly, I say to you, wherever this gospel is preached... Wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. We don't know about anyone else who was in that room, but we do know about this lady. 
She has been preserved in the pages of Scripture for the last 2,000 years. She came prepared. She bore the cost. She endured the criticism. She was commended by Jesus. And she made a lasting memory. She worshiped the Lord in a radical and costly way. You know, many of us are too proud to worship like this lady did. Many of us are too stingy to worship like this lady did. We're more comfortable with the routine. We're more comfortable with superficiality. We're we're more comfortable with mediocrity, just going through the motions. Now, understand, I'm not talking about style. I'm not talking about style. I'm talking about fervency. I'm talking about genuineness and passion and heartfelt sincerity. That's what this lady models for us. This is such a powerful story, especially when you see where it fits in Mark's gospel. The preceding verses are about the Jewish leaders plotting to to kill Jesus. And the following verses which Lord willing we'll see next week, are about Judas agreeing to betray Jesus. So the leaders are plotting to kill him. Judas is plotting to betray him. Sandwiched in between is this beautiful story about a woman who loved Jesus so much that she was willing to worship him at great cost. When you stop to think about it, It's sad to realize that near the end of our Lord's life, after he had given so much of himself to serve people, had given so much of himself that he was often exhausted, exhausted to the point that in a a boat, in the middle of a storm, he didn't even wake up. It's sad to realize that after he had given so much, he was hated by the Jewish leaders and seen by Judas as only worth what he could get for him in betrayal. Yet this lady was a shining exception to the way all those others felt about Jesus. She loved him. She adored him. She was in awe of him. So she worshiped him. Now let me bring this forward 2,000 years to today. Still today, you know this, There are people who hate Jesus. Still today, there are people who ignore Jesus. Still today, there are people who see him as an opportunity to get something for themselves. But hopefully you and I are an exception to all of that because we know Jesus and love him and we are in awe of him and we worship him. So which is it for you? Do you hate Jesus because he interferes with what you want in life? You may say, Brian, that's a silly question to ask of this group. I mean, you really would think that anybody here would hate Jesus? Oh, without question. There's no doubt that people sometimes come here who hate Jesus. Whatever their motives, whatever their reason. Maybe they're just trying to placate a family member or a friend or whatever it is, but they hate Jesus because he interferes with what they want in life. 
Is that you? Or do you simply ignore him and go about doing your own thing? Or do you see him as a tool that can help you get something for yourself? Or do you know him? And do you love him? And do you worship him? This lady, this lady is our example. Would you please bow your head with me this morning? As we begin to wind down our time together this morning, again, I want to ask you, where do you fit? Where do you fall? Do you hate Jesus because he interferes with what you want in life? Or do you simply ignore him and go about doing your own thing? Or do you see him as a tool that can help you get something for yourself? Or do you know him and love him and worship him? If you don't know him, I don't mean just know about him. You obviously know about him to some degree. But if you don't know him personally, genuinely, as your own Lord and Savior, you can come to know him today. If you will, in the quietness of your own heart, just humble yourself before the Lord. Just like a man, told, a G, a man that Jesus described in one of his stories, a man who went to the temple and he, he wouldn't even lift his eyes up. He just kept his head bowed and he beat on his chest and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. And Jesus said, that man went home justified. So if you don't know Jesus, you can come to know him today. You can humble yourself before him. And like that man in that story that Jesus told, you can just say, oh, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I deserve judgment. I plead for your forgiveness. I want to know Jesus. Because I understand now that knowing Jesus, coming to know Jesus, means salvation. It means forgiveness. It means eternal life. So I want to come to know Jesus. If that is the sincere and genuine desire of your heart, you can call out to the Lord. And Romans 10 says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Call on him today. And if you do know Jesus, look at your heart and see if it's become calloused. Especially if you've known the Lord for a long time. This lady, this lady really, her example really prods us. It's a real rebuke to us if we've become calloused, if we've lost our passion in worship. Ask the Lord to stir your heart, to revive your heart, to refresh your love for the Lord Jesus. So that when you come to worship, you don't just go through the motions. You don't just carry out the ritual, the liturgy. But you really, really worship from your heart with all your heart. And Father, you know every one of us here in this room this morning. You know right where we are at spiritually. You know the condition of our hearts. And you know if there are those present here who do not truly know your Son, Jesus Christ, as Lord and Savior, and who do not know you as Father, and you know very well the need in their lives to be drawn to the Lord Jesus, 
We pray you would draw them today and that today they would come to know him genuinely, sincerely. And having come to know him, they would love him and worship him. And Father, we would pray that for all of us. Uh, No matter if we've known the Lord Jesus for a week, a month, a year, 10 years, 20 years, may our love for the Lord Jesus be passionate and our worship of the Lord Jesus be passionate. Use the example of this precious woman to stir our hearts, to convict our hearts, to remind us of what it means to really abandon ourselves in worship of the Lord Jesus. May we be in awe of him as she was in awe of him and love him as she loved him. And may her example prompt us, not only this day, but in the days ahead, to really, really display our love for him in our worship of him as we pray in his name. Amen.